In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. My guest today joins me in this two-part series. Frank Loy has served in the Department of State in three administrations. He served as Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs in the second administration of President Clinton. His portfolio included developing U.S. international policy and conducting negotiations in the fields of the environment, climate change, human rights, the promotion of democracy, refugees, and humanitarian affairs, and counter-narcotics. Under President Carter, he was director of the Bureau of Refugee Programs, with the personal rank of ambassador, and in the Johnson administration, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Economic Affairs. During 2007 and 2008, he served on the Obama campaign as a co-leader of the Energy and Environment Team and a member of the National Finance Committee. He spent some 10 years in the business sector, first as Senior Vice President of Pan American Airways, responsible for securing for Pan American from both foreign governments and the United States the operating rights for its airline and hotel operations. He also directed Pan Am's extensive technical assistance programs and subsequently became a founding partner of the firm that brought the bankrupt Penn Central Transportation Company out of bankruptcy and then became president of the New York Stock Exchange listed company that emerged from that bankruptcy. From 1981 to 1995 he served as president of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S., an American foundation focused on U.S.-European political, economic, and environmental relations. Following the fall of the Berlin War, the German Marshall Fund focused the majority of its efforts on promoting democratic institutions in the former Soviet bloc Eastern European countries. Over the years, he served on numerous corporate boards, including Madison Square Garden, Pharmaceutical Product Development, Applied Bioscience, Buckeye Pipeline, and he's chaired many boards of not-for-profit organizations, including Goddard College, the League of Conservation Voters. He also taught a course in environmental law and policy at the Yale Law School and Forestry School. At present, he serves on the boards of numerous non-profit organizations. In the field of the environment, these include Resources for the Future, Environmental Defense Fund, the Nature Conservancy, the Pew Center for Global Climate Change, and Eco-America. And in addition, he chairs the Boards of Population Services International and the Arthur Burns Fellowship Program, and serves on the Boards of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies and the Washington Ballet. He was recently decorated and recipient of Germany's highest civilian award. He's a graduate of UCLA and the Harvard Law School, lives in Washington with his wife, Dale a painter, and has two children and four grandchildren. Frank Loy. 
Welcome to In Discussion today. It is a great pleasure to be joined by Frank Loy for our second of two programs in the series. Frank Loy, welcome to you, sir. I'm glad to be here again. We had a wonderful program that we shared yesterday. I was interested that you raised Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. It's certainly something that I'm constantly engaged in. What your perspective on that was, he has a tough time with the Inconvenient Truth. There are a lot of camps that follow him, but many that don't. How do you think that he has performed? Do you think that he has been successful in his work? Well, I think in many respects he is a hero in that he has taken a complex scientific subject and first in his slideshow presentation and then subsequently in the film produced and directed by Davis Guggenheim, has laid out the case, and it is a very persuasive case, and I think it's quite well done. So, in that sense, he's a hero. I think the problem is, there are two problems. One of them is he was vice president in a Democratic administration and a candidate for president. Some would even say a winning president, a candidate for president, but leave that out. Anyway, so he is very much a Democrat. And I think in part because of that, the Republicans have taken on the climate issue that he raised as a challenge in some respects, and because it was raised by a Democrat, have largely uh, chosen to oppose it. Uh, maybe a more profound reason for that is that if you accept the notion that uh, climate change is a real and constant threat to our planet and to the kind of life that we can lead on our planet. And I do believe that. I absolutely believe that. I think the science is quite clear on that. But if you believe that, then you've got to do something about it. And that seems to be quite inconvenient for some people, and therefore it's easier to say it's doubtful that this is happening. So bottom line, Al Gore seems to me to be a hero in having raised it skillfully and in intensely and intensely, but because he was a partisan person by reason of his uh, record and his running for office, why a good deal of people lined up against it. I was interested, as we concluded our conversation yesterday in reviewing the decades since the end of the war, that you had highlighted today that the enemy, hidden or otherwise, was the climate problems that exist. It is a very complex issue. To me, it seems that the uh, Coyote Accord and, and many other mandates put into place have not been that successful. Where do you think this lies in gaining more support, not only in the political realm, but also in the corporate realm, who seem to be somewhat oblivious of the severe need to look at this issue? It seems to me that if any entity now has the power to be able to gain recognition and enlighten the general public about the climate issues, it, it is the, the corporate world. Where do you think these responsibilities lie? Obviously, I realize that they lie with all of us. Do you consider that there is any mechanism in the future that needs to be put into place? And what sort of entity do you think it would be that would head that up? 
There are several questions that you pose, and they're all valid and good ones. First, I do think very much of the world does understand the seriousness of climate change, and much of the world is taking quite a serious responsive action, maybe frequently not really quite as, as ambitious as the science tells us we need, but ambitious. The United States is, in a sense, one of the outstanding laggards. Uh, Canada is another one. There's some others, but we are definitely a laggard. I would not agree that the world as a whole doesn't understand it. It is some parts of it, uh, some parts of the world not only understand it, but have acted on it. The second thing I would say is that in important part, the corporate world gets the benefits of energy efficiency and the benefits of non-polluting energy, gets it pretty well. We recently had uh, an, an organization called USCAP, which uh, uh, was composed of maybe 25 of the Fortune 100 biggest companies in the world and maybe five environmental organizations. And they produced a very significant blueprint for action and lobbied for its acceptance by the U.S. Congress without success, as you well know. But So I think the corporate world gets it. The fossil fuel industries, particularly coal and part of the large part of the oil industry, has, of course, an economic stake in slowing down anything that would limit the use of those uh, fossil fuels. And they have been uh, quite uh, destructive and, in large part, quite dishonest, in my opinion, uh, dishonest uh, element in the debate. But... I wouldn't say the corporate world doesn't get it. I think the corporate world, in large part, does get it, but uh, has so far not been able to get it worked through the Congress of the United States. You asked one more question, and that is, uh, is there a body that could assure that these important, drastic uh, actions would be taken around the world? And the answer is, of course, there is not. And I would say for the next several years, what we need to do is we need to find alternate, less global methods of making progress, because we do need to make progress. But the sort of successor to Kyoto, with the United States participating in it, which it, it has not participated in Kyoto. That's not, I think, in the in the cards in the near future. There's certainly still a movement, even now, when we've seen a dreadful recession in the last several years that continues unabated, despite the deep concerns about climate. I think that the corporate world is beginning to get it. They know that they're is going to be such a conscious movement that is going to almost force their hand. And I think it's a question of bridging between the consumer and the supplier so that the worst of these factors being fossil fuels can be almost eliminated. And in talking to new scientists, there's no doubt that there are technologies coming through that can work very well in the future. Do you think that entities or organizations such as the UN have a role in this? I suspect that it will be a different type of body. But do you think that these established organizations like the United Nations and others still have to step up more in this regard? I think the climate negotiations have, of course, been carried on under the UN auspices, and I think they will continue to be carried on. 
because many, many nations, many of the developing nations and, and others as well, believe that that is necessary to give kind of a um, legitimacy to whatever emerges. But it's a very difficult forum in which to negotiate. I was the lead U.S. negotiator in that for three years, and, you know, there are now 193 countries in that forum, and and we work by consensus in that forum, and that's very hard to make progress. So my sense is for the near term, for the next several years, the real progress is likely to be made in other fora, whether it be the G20 or whether it be specially constituted fora or whether it be regional fora. But it's going to be then sort of taken up to and validated or supported by the UN 193 nation body. And that is a step that many, many countries insist on and want to see implemented. And I think that's the way it's going to work. So that large body isn't going to be where the deals are struck, but where the deals that are struck elsewhere are supported. My perspective, and I stay very pragmatic about this and very uh, centered, but I always look at the world, particularly since the 1970s, as being one of a increasingly do-consume materialistic world. And there are some delicate balances when you have such a huge worldwide population in determining how you can cater for that demand of materialism and yet on the other side of it ensure that the work equation always comes into energy it comes into pretty much everything today where everything we do has equal and opposite effect in terms of pollution and damage to the planet do you think that there will be some type of new governing body or some sort of new approach notwithstanding these present organizations who can look at this more philosophically look at this the way that we live especially in developed nations and figure out how this do consume world that we live in can be checked as it were in moving forward well, you are, of course, right in suggesting that uh, the wealthy nations and the wealthy people in all nations uh, do consume a lot, and by doing so, use a lot of energy and use a lot of raw materials and therefore disproportionately contribute to, among other things, uh, greenhouse gas emissions because they come from the stuff that makes our energy, mostly. That said, that's, that's a fact. But I do not think that it is wise to uh, try to um, energize people into um, caring about climate change by telling them that they have to all live more poorly. I just don't think that's a very good motivator. And so I think that is not a road to success. Because what we need is populations to understand that uh, they have to do something about pollution, but uh, there are other ways to do that, uh, such as using clean energy rather than fossil fuel energy and being energy efficient rather than wasteful. Our 
friend, Dr. Bruce Piasecki, who I follow intensely with his work, talks about the notion of doing more with less, working on the principle that the great E.F. Schumacher had of small is beautiful. And Bruce does use the word fugality, but I don't think it's in the sense that people have to be poor. I think it's simply a way that we live that reduces our dependence upon energy and surely there is a, a way to achieve that, that that doesn't diminish quality of life but certainly increases the potential for uh, protecting our natural resources. Yeah, and I think we have to find that. I worry about giving the impression through the way we talk that the only way to achieve that kind of reduction in emitting greenhouse gases and other pollutants is by living sort of a Spartan uh, life. And my point is eventually maybe that's the only way to do it and maybe that's true, but it's very hard to get political broad-based support for any action program if the idea is that the result of that will be uh, living more poorly. The big reminder, I think, to not only the United States but also the world last year was the disaster in the Gulf of Mexico. It seems to be a strange paradigm. How do you think that that journey through that time and the aftermath now will resonate in 10 or 15 years. It certainly created an awful lot of damage, both in human terms and also in terms of the way that it's impacted air quality, soil, many parts of that whole region which have been damaged. Do you think that is going to be a useful reminder, a useful lesson? Do you think that we will learn by that? Well, I hope we will learn by that, but the question is, what are we learning? I think what we have to learn is, uh, and what I think we are learning in the United States, is that the criteria and the standards and the rules for offshore drilling, especially in deep wells, have to be re-examined and are being re-examined, and the rules set down have to be enforced more uh, effectively. I think there has to be a regulatory scheme that works better than it has to date. So I think I think we are learning that lesson in the United States. The president has already changed the leadership of that organization and has uh, changed the organization and its name. And it's it's a new body, a very new body, and a lot less uh, cozy with the industry than it was before. On the other hand. We are going to rely on oil for a long time, and that includes offshore oil. And I think that is part of the bargain of be living in an industrial age. The sooner we can reduce our reliance, the better. That's not quick. So I don't think we're going to learn the lesson that we should stop drilling for oil offshore, even though it will, even with better regulation, it will pose risks to the environment. One answer is that there is no uh, form of energy creation that is totally free from downsides. You know, wind farms, some people think, are unsightly. Uh, nuclear has the risk of an accident and so forth. Creating energy is, involves uh, some risks. 
and some downsides, but they're very different levels, and none is as bad as coal, and, and none is as bad as badly drilled oil in, in deep wells offshore. I rather worry that it was, or it did come about to a certain extent because of predatory greed. Would you think that that's overstating it, or is it perhaps a good idea to remind these corporations that their need for profits is really out of sight at this stage? I think I would put it differently. Um, I think uh, what is necessary to remind these corporations is that shortcuts in the area of safety and in the area of environmental controls can be very risky, uh, risky in the bottom line and risky in the reputation and can, at worst, bring down a whole company. So I think uh, if oil companies can uh, make lots of money by drilling responsibly, they don't have a problem with that. Uh, let me add a PS to that. I mean, in the United States, I, I don't know the story in other countries very well, but in the United States we have a whole raft of tax benefits that we give to the oil companies that reduce our revenues as a nation a lot and are totally inappropriate for a mature, established, and extraordinarily rich industry like oil industry. So I think we ought to look at that from the revenue point of view, but I can't say that I think we ought to be moral about it so much as practical. I'd like to move on from there because the conversation has a narrative that is certainly centered on the fact that we're acknowledging that there is an increasing worldwide population and therefore there has to be a way to cater for that. There is a lot of controversy over companies like Monsanto and now you look at a company that is uh, producing oil that is in demand and then you're looking at companies that are creating diverse different forms of seed uh, enhancing agricultural crops do you think that that is a viable way to go to enhance uh, crops across the world with a seed like this uh, perhaps even to my mind changing cultures in country damaging cultures is it a necessity now i think it's a necessity I think the whole notion of genetically modified agricultural products has been, I think, badly dealt with by quite a few people, including quite a few from the environmental community, of which I consider myself as kind of a charter member. I think agriculture has thrived and has needed constant modification of crops by changing seeds and by grafting one kind of character uh, onto another in an effort to get crops that withstand various pests and also various climates. Uh, and I think the genetic, uh, the, the Monsantos of the world, and there aren't very many, but the Monsantos uh, have a responsibility to do two things, to make sure that what they produce, A, doesn't provide health risks to humans, and B, doesn't provide environmental risks in the sense that it would wipe out some other species that it didn't mean to wipe out. But I think the record actually is, is very good, not very bad. I mean, we have in the United States eaten 
genetically modified foodstuffs for 25, 30 years, I think this is correct. I, I, I'm not aware of a single fatality or a single serious illness that has resulted from that. So I think the human health risks that some people talk about are simply, as far as I know, totally undemonstrated. And the environmental risks, I think, are handleable and have been handled. So let me be even more provocative and I say that I think the European environmental communities and the governments that they have influenced have done a lot of damage to the development of agriculture and particularly when they persuade uh, developing countries like a Zambia or a Tanzania or the like and not to, to accept the genetic modification as part of their agricultural policy. I think as the climate change, if we don't get new varieties of agricultural products, we're going to have real problem in feeding the world. Do you think, though, that it's the right of indigenous communities to choose as to whether they want to retain their traditional culture and attempt to work with the traditions that they've had for many hundreds of years rather than take that step into this technology? Yeah, well, let, let me let me modify the question a little bit. I think, I mean, these things are regulated by countries, by nations. And I think it is, you're absolutely right in suggesting that it is the right of every nation uh, to determine what kind of products it wants to import and whether the importation of that product in some way does harm to an important value of that country, including sort of traditional ways of life. I think that is a valid thing. And I think these countries not only have the right to say no, but they also have a right to know what the hell has gone into the modification that the Monsanto's or the other organizations do. So I think you do need that kind of transparency, and you need the right of countries to say, I don't want it. But I, I don't think it is uh, wise or particularly fair to argue that these countries should say no on the basis of what I consider unscientific and unsound arguments, as we have heard for you know some time now. And I might just say that when I was in government, I actually negotiated. I was the lead negotiator of an agreement that gives two countries, any country, the right, A, to ask what modification took place, what are the, what are the elements in the new product, and B, the right to say, okay, I don't want it. And by saying that, it would not violate any um, international obligations it had. Moving on now, as we progress through the program, it must have been an amazing time serving as Under Secretary of State in Global Affairs. How was that period for you? Does it conjure up many uh, good memories? Was it a very changing time in your life, a learning period? Well, yes, it was. It was to be um, one of the very senior officials in the United States government responsible for setting policy and executing the policy in foreign affairs, that's pretty heady stuff. And so the answer was it was an important changing event. And I was lucky that I actually knew quite a bit about a number of the important issues that I was responsible for. 
and the environment and science being one of them, and uh, refugees and humanitarian affairs being another. Since I had done the refugee and humanitarian affairs job in an earlier administration. On the other hand, there were things that I knew about but had never had responsibility for or worked in, and that is includes human rights, and it includes the uh, counter-narcotics efforts of the U.S. government, the international counter-narcotics efforts, and the general dealing with international legal affairs, but principally international criminal issues. So those were all new, and, and the promotion of democracy was new. That those su- subjects, and they're all they're all major, and they all involve very significant U.S. interests. So one of the things you had to do is you had to a hire really good people, bring good people into the government to to help you do that. And I was very fortunate to be able to do that. And then secondly, you had to make some very clear choices as to where you were going to spend much of your time and where you could only afford to spend a little of your time and how you were going to allocate that time because that soon became your most precious resource is the time that you had to spend on these various issues. Was President Clinton a great supporter of the, the work in your area? Did you get support from him? Yes. Uh, I think he was very good on these subjects. He, of course, had created this job. Uh, he had the, the, the position did not e- exist until he came in in 1993. But he understood the importance of all of these issues, and that's why he elevated them in the Department of State and uh, with it by the creation of this position. And, you know, he cared about the environment, uh, and that is, I think, heavily influenced by Al Gore, his vice president, because when he was President Clinton was governor of the state of Arkansas, uh, I don't think his environmental record was particularly outstanding, uh, but he became a huge, under. he understood the issue when he was faced with it, and he became a great supporter. The same is true of human rights. The same is true of uh, narcotic strategy. The same is true of uh, the refugees strategy that we had. He was very good. We're in many ways, as I chart social history, talking about a period that approaches this dreadful event in September 2001, which really did turn all of us on our heads in many ways in so many areas of life. In your mind, do you think that government, government policy, the way that the Constitution worked, changed after the events of September the 11th? In some ways, I'm guessing that it's a naive question because I'm sure that it had to, to an extent, uh, to cater for those dreadful events. But do you think the government did change dramatically after that period? Well, I think there were some important changes, and most of them deal with with the issue of really of the rights of those that we suspect are part of some international terrorist activity. Uh, and the whole issue of what rights they have, uh, whether they're U.S. citizens or foreigners, and in what courts they are to be tried and so forth, and what level of um, interrogation is legitimate. I think that was definitely affected by the events of 9-11. Uh, 
9-11, you know, we've been lucky and for many years, uh, for decades, really, uh, that war was not visible, really, on our soil. I mean, World War One was elsewhere, and World War Two was elsewhere, and Vietnam was in Vietnam, and, and the Korean War was over there. But all of a sudden, there, there was an attack on our soil, and I think that it had just the profound effect that you have described, and I think did affect some of the things that I suggested. In some respect, it didn't do enough. I, I would have thought that uh, two things should have happened. One is that if we were going to increase our expenditures to combat terrorism, and then very shortly thereafter to combat terrorism by invading Iraq without getting into the question whether that made any sense or not, it seems to me we should have been willing to pay for that. And instead, we went uh, all those years fighting uh, first one war and then a second war, uh, first in Iraq, then in Afghanistan, without ever asking the American people to pay for it and putting it all on the credit card. I think that was a very, that was a very unfortunate decision. I might say not really uh, consistent with the history of past wars where in, in many of those, for example, in World War II, the President of the United States was extremely anxious to find ways to pay for it currently. So that's one thing that didn't happen, I think. And another thing that didn't happen is really a more general aspect of the first, and that is most Americans were not asked to sacrifice much. All of a sudden, we found ourselves in a new war, quote, a war against terrorism. But there was a huge effort to, to make sure that most people wouldn't feel it. They wouldn't feel it in taxation, and they wouldn't feel it in uh, conscription into the military, which is, it was all a voluntary effort. And so for a lot of people, once the shock was understood and absorbed, the whole issue of the, quote, war against terrorism was kind of a, a distant and other people's business. Again, in my work, I try to figure out the deeper meaning of the attacks Clearly, they had a huge, enormous financial impact, to an extent a political impact. But it was, like the climate problem, very much, again, a hidden enemy with a lot of unknowns. One wonders if the attacks were very much psychological, because the country has changed a lot since that time. Do you think that there's a basis for that thought that much of that attack was a, a psychological type of warfare? I think most terrorist acts are sort of a psychological warfare. They are intended to frighten. They're intended to call attention to the terrorists and their cause. And they're intended to frighten those that uh, are the targets of that uh, effort. So I think in, in that sense, you, it's absolutely true. It is a psychological event as well as, of course, a physical one and, and a terrible tragedy for those that are actually uh, killed or injured in the attack. But as you, I think, as your question earlier pointed out, it, 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 had, a, it had a very important political and psychological effect on this country and on other countries, too, that weren't the target of 9-11, but understood the implications of what was happening. So, yes, 
it's it's an important watershed in our recent history. I often wonder if there was a referendum now in this country, what the result of that would be in terms of the American public's position on still being in Afghanistan and in Iraq. I think it would be a very difficult referendum. Do you have any sense of which way the people would go, whether they would want to, at this stage, some seven or eight years later, want to pull out now and concentrate more on the economy and framework of the United States rather than attempting to fight a, an insurgency abroad, which is, of course, the, the most difficult to fight? I think it depends very much on how you phrase the question. I mean, um, if you ask him, would you rather be in Afghanistan or not? Uh, or even if you ask him, do you think you can ever win in Afghanistan or not? I think most people would say not. But if you ask the question, do you think we should depart Afghanistan within the next uh, two or three months? Or if you say, do you think that the uh, present plan to begin drawing down troops from Afghanistan in 2011 is right, I mean, you'd get different answers. I think nobody wants to be there. I think a lot of people think it's not a winnable war. But one of the things that we've learned is, and, and intuitively I think the American people have learned, is that it's relatively easy to get into a war, and it turns out to be very hard to get out of it. And even people that think the war is a dreadful mistake don't necessarily agree as to how to get out of it. I wonder how some social historians would draw comparisons between current involvement, particularly in Afghanistan and possibly developing in Pakistan, against the Vietnam conflict. Do you think there are many comparisons, or was it a completely different type of conflict? Well, I think it has the similarity that I alluded to, which is it was easy to get in relatively, <laughs> relatively, and it's very hard to get out. And I think it has the lack of symmetry that many have talked about, which is, you know, that we have sort of standing armies and we are met with kind of an insurgency that is uh, in small groups and hard to find and, and the like. And then so there are comparisons and similarities. Having said that, I'm not sure that helps us decide what to do, but I think they're there. The bigger concern, more than anything, are the men and women who return from those areas. There's an awful lot of damage, is there not? N not only on them psychologically, traumatically, but also on the townships and the communities uh, that are affected by it back in this country. Oh, yeah. I mean, the cost uh, in human lives and suffering is enormous. And, and we have the paradoxical situation where our ability to um, save uh, injured military people, soldiers, uh, uh, save their lives, I think we're, we're much better at that than we were 20, 25 years ago. But it also means that we end up with people coming home 
not dying on the battlefield but coming home who are very injured and very damaged both physically and psychologically we will need as a nation uh, to to support those people and deal with those people for a long time the german marshall fund of the united states you were president 81 to 95 in studying this it must have given you a great insight as to the differences between the way that the European works, that the old Eastern Bloc worked in this position. It must have given you some benefits to be able to be involved with and experienced in the way that they work in many issues beyond environmental when it came to figuring out strategies that face the United States? I was there a relatively long time, and it was, it was an absolutely fascinating part of my career. And it, it had what you suggest. We started out particularly dealing with Europe and the United States, but Europe at that time was Western Europe. And so we did a lot of trying to learn from each other because we were all advanced industrialized states with somewhat similar social problems and different uh, approaches. And that was interesting. But by far the most interesting period started with the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the really the collapse of the Soviet sphere in Eastern Europe. And that happened in very late 89 and beginning of 1990, and from that time on, and almost immediately, almost immediately, why we changed our, our program, and we spent most of our money helping the countries in Eastern Europe that just emerged from the Soviet sphere uh, to develop democratic institutions like an independent press and an independent judiciary and a uh, legislature that works in a civil society that had uh, non-governmental organizations that could participate in making life better and so forth. And it was a, a rare privilege to be able to work at that moment of history which is an important moment when they, when the, this empire, the, the Soviet empire, crumbled and changed, to be able to work in, in a serious way to help those people that were all of a sudden free of that yoke make something of their country and their lives. And, and we did that, and that was, that was quite wonderful. It follows a pattern, does it not? Not only with the United States, but I'm sure the United Kingdom as well. Uh, certainly after the armistice in 1918, uh, we did to a great extent provide financial, uh, logistical and infrastructural support to Germany and those nations as we did after the Second World War. Here we are doing it again uh, as we did back then with countries like Japan. It's a strange irony uh, when you look at war that America and its allies did come out of this. They were the first to rebuild these nations and happy to do so. Obviously, it was revenue and it was creating jobs. It also says quite a lot about the allies in terms of their ethical position, their, their moral position, in order to not walk away but to help restructure a culture. 
Yes, it does say a lot, and uh, it, it says two things, it seems to me. Uh, I have to say that this period, uh, immediately following World War II, and particularly the Marshall Plan, I think uh, some of America's finest hours, I think that the way it was handled says two things. One, that people did learn from the mistakes of Versailles uh, where, and from the mistakes of the uh, piece that was uh, written at Versailles after World War One, which uh, sought to, to uh, reduce uh, Germany to uh, a really impoverished and bitter country. And it was bitter, and, and that had political consequences. And secondly, I think it showed that if you structure the aid right, you could actually remarkably quickly rebuild the whole continent. And that both of these considerations required the inclusion of Germany as, as one of the largest countries in that continent. And it is a, I'd have to say the Marshall Plan is just a huge success story. And interestingly, just to, to close the loop, um, the German Marshall Fund is an American institution, is an American institution created uh, by a gift from the German government as a kind of thank you from the German people to the American people for the aid given to Germany after World War II. There are some camps, of course, who say that it was also uh, giving an excuse to internationalism, to forcing upon these countries more of a, a Western democracy a style type regime. Do you think that that somewhat exaggerating the, the purpose, uh, particularly after the First and Second World War? Well, uh, I'm not a student of the, of the after the First World War. After the Second World War, there was no question that the Marshall Plan was sold to the members of Congress and to the American people in important part as part uh, as a as a means of preventing uh, Europe from falling within the Soviet orbit. And I think that was uh, in part uh, very uh, sincere. I think people were concerned about that. But I think it was also in part simply a way of selling an idea which had had other purposes. And the, among the other purposes were at least three. One of them was the one I suggest. Don't mis make the same mistake as you did after World War One. Don't create a new enemy right away by the way you treat uh, the defeated countries. Work with them rather than um, try to punish them. And the second thing is the U.S. was then the most the strongest economic power. It's very hard being a strong economic power if the rest of the world is impoverished. So there is some advantage in getting some economic activity going in Europe. And the third one was humanitarian. I mean, there's no question that people in Europe were starving and people in Europe had no heat and people in Europe had no future. And it was a continent with which most of Americans had uh, some connection in past history that was in desperate straits. So there was a humanitarian aspect to it that which was quite significant. As we Sadly, close the program. I think my final question, as it were, would be your thoughts of America now as a tangible power in the world, how you see the world moving forward. 
particularly America as a country retaining all the guidelines, uh, ambitions, and objectives of its founding fathers? America generally has come through when the world had a crisis, and America in the last period has played an extremely useful and, and helpful role. Certainly, uh, the military role in, in World War II was crucial, and the economic role afterwards was crucial. Our steadfastness in dealing with the threat of the Soviet Union was, was useful. So I think we've played a very, very good role. I think right as of this moment, I have to say that I worry a little bit as to whether the U.S. is able to deal with problems that it faces uh, that are more complicated and a little subtler than those that, are fa that you face when you have an enemy in wartime or the like. Climate change is one of those. The effect of dealing with, with the effort to avoid uh, or reduce proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons is another one. Uh, the effort to close the gap between the rich nations and the poor nations would be a third one. Failure to do that is a threat to us, but we don't know how to... Uh, we, we were not very good, and we've not been terribly successful in erasing that divide between the rich and the poor. Those are complicated, subtle questions, and the, whether the United States uh, is able to have a rational debate about that and to, and, and to come out on the right side of it, I do worry about that from time to time, and uh, the last, uh, and and certainly the the discussion on climate change makes you quite sad, and makes you worry that maybe uh, the more complex the question, the more risk there is that we won't come up with an answer. Your most treasured memory, looking back over your life, I think as I look at my children and my grandchildren. Uh, I think the memory I have is that of a life that started relatively difficult with having to move to four countries and before you were the age of nine or so and to go to maybe six or seven schools before the age of nine, a, a turbulent beginning and, and a quite rich present time, and that's pretty satisfying. Frank Loy, it has been an incredible pleasure to spend these two programs with you. I'm sure that we could spend many more hours together, and I certainly hope that we do that in the future. I do thank you for joining me today. And I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, David. And to our listeners today, I do hope that you enjoyed these two programs with former Undersecretary of State Frank Loy. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors.
In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. 